Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform, subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. There's something about being transporting somebody and really just knocking them off their stable foundation. To me, that's a gateway beer. Maybe it's like a stargate of a gateway beer. (laughs) But to me, that's the most effective version. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Good beer hunting has changed how beer is covered and viewed. Over the past decade, founder Michael Kaiser and his team have used photography, long-form journalism, podcasting, humor, and even festivals as avenues for sharing experiences, flavors, and perhaps most importantly, human-sized stories. I joined Michael at GBH Studio in Westtown, and over glasses of Bourbon County barley wine and Schlenkerle Weissen, we discussed our mutual histories in beer, how covering it has changed over time, and what kind of future we see for this beverage that has shaped our lives. It was a pleasure to have this conversation in person. Some things are just better face-to-face. Let's dive and get heavy. Michael Kaiser, welcome to your studio and welcome to Heavy Hops. <laughs> yeah, it's like a pop-up. <laughs> this works, this works. I'm still sitting in the host chair, though. It's, soft, yeah. it's softer. <laughs> so this is the Good Beer Hunting Studio. And is this the first studio of yours here? Or have you had other locations that you've been in before? We've had sort of, uh, this is like number two and a half. The, I, once I left my apartment, I moved into a place called Rational Park, which was a co-working space up on North Avenue. Oh, that was where you shared with the Riot Fest folks, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was other designers and whatnot in there. And I, I basically just had a desk and I had a basement I could record in with a bunch of like drums and guitars all around me all the time. Uh, that was a fun. That was a fun phase. And then we had a space over on Wrightwood uh, in Logan Square. Um, just down the street from Lula Cafe, which I loved. That place was so cool. But it was tiny, and it was enough for me and like two other people to work out of. And then we grew out of that, and then this was sort of a, this has been our home. It'll be our home for at least five years by the time we're done. But we came into a pretty raw space here and got to build out like a little kitchen and a bar and a you know co working area and stuff. And so we kind of made our we made this ours. Like this yeah. is fun. You're close to breweries here in West Town and also coffee roasters, two things that I know are important to you. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I mean, more and more of them. Um, I mean, one of the places that opened up right after we moved in was Midwest Coast, which is just around the corner. And it was, I don't know, it was maybe three years right at the beginning of the pandemic when they eventually they be, finally became a client. Uh, and, we, you know, they didn't realize they lived so close to us down here, which was kind of funny. But yeah, they became a client and they've been making some incredible, like traditional beers. Their brown ale is, uh, like Mike Zoller uh, in Chicago. Can't get enough of that thing. I see him post about it like every other day. But yeah, we just keep getting surrounded, I guess, by more and more of the things we love as long as we stay here. So I'll take that. Yeah, you found a good anchor point. Right now, you don't have to go to people. They come to you. That's right. For this episode, I thought it would be really fun for us to bring one beer each that had kind of stuck with us for a long time. And that sort of criteria is pretty open-ended in the sense that is this a beer that is something that you've enjoyed on its own for a long time? Is it something that you've sort of changed with? Or is it a beer that may have changed as well? And we could have lived parallel or separate lives from it. And for the front nine, as we were referring to it as for this... uh, You referred to it. You used the golf metaphor, not me. I do golf. (laughs) 
We have the Schlenkerla Weissen, so unique for them, a wheat beer that's top fermented and smoked. And I personally find this brewery to be unique because of history and also because of the importer. But I guess like for you, Michael, you were coming up in beer and we were coming up together around the same time. That was when imported beer was much more common. Especially in Chicago. Yeah, it was a big import market for a long time. Were imports something that you were kind of interested in when you were writing and sort of starting good beer hunting? Yeah, I didn't really think about them as the category of imports at the time because I didn't really have the business brain for beer uh, at the time. But it was not lost on me that when I moved from Pennsylvania to Chicago, that everything I saw was some kind of German-ish import, right? Uh I mean, this was the Francis Connor town when I got here. That's, I mean, you found that everywhere, those big bottles and they'd roll them around and make a big deal out of it. It was kind of showy and, but it was a simple beer and fun and delicious. Uh, and it was like everywhere you go, it was just half of Eisen all day long. That was a Chicago summer. And that, that, that left a huge impression on me. So yeah, I guess I thought about it that way in terms of just like traditional European beers, but I didn't really think about what it meant to be an import versus a local or anything like that. Cause I didn't come from a place where that was really much of a thing. Uh, I came from a yingling state. We didn't even think about Bud Miller Coors. We thought about yingling and that was it. Uh, and a little bit of Jenny uh, and some Rolling Rock. And that was, I don't know. So we kind of had our regional influences, but that was also so default that we didn't think about it at all. Um, so moving to Chicago is very much, I think, what gave me an awareness of like global beer and then also eventually very localized beer, which was kind of cool. Was there sort of like a particular point where you began to explore beer or find yourself looking at it, not just from the vantage point of this is a beverage I enjoy, but investigating it with a little more rigor? Yeah, that sort of like awareness moment. I'd enjoyed beer plenty up until this, but that awareness moment was Cezanne Dupont. Uh, and it was at the map room, uh, and it was during this thing called beer school. And we used to, we used to love the beer school thing, which was, uh, it was just like a little seminar hosted in the back around the tables with a bunch of bread and cheese curds, basically. And Greg Brown from Mickey Finn's would come in and he would just sort of have a theme that he made up. Like one time it was canned beers, you know, like the, or the other time it was pale, you know, hoppy beers and things. It was very 101 stuff. But it was done in a really casual sort of like bring your friends get wasted in the middle of the day kind of vibe because it was it was in the middle of a Saturday. We always left feeling pretty good. And one of the themes was farmhouse sales. And we didn't know what that meant. We thought it was a funny phrase. You know, I was like, what are these from farms? Like just the dumbest sort of perspective you can imagine on it. And uh, and I had my first days on DuPont and he used words that sounded disgusting. Barnyard, sweaty socks, things like this, you know, and I was like, wow, that's a weird way to describe a beer. And then what I tasted in that moment of things, it just felt like a revelation to me. And I remember the people around me sort of being like kind of intrigued by the beers. But for me, I was like, am I experiencing a high that is different than the high that you are all experiencing? Like it felt like I was on a trip. And uh, that was the, yeah, that was the, that was the moment that switch flipped into something where I was like, I need to know more about this. And it became the beginning of a very long rabbit hole for me. That was a big deal. Yeah, I think it was with this sort of brand of beer, Schlankerla, for me, I had a similar sort of transportative moment. I had a different one earlier that I'll talk about later with the next beer that we're going to drink. But I really sort of found the smoky profile to be really interesting from a culinary perspective. I think I was like eating something that had a lot of like both caramelized flavors and flavors that lent themselves really, really well to the smoky profile of generally smoked beer, but in 
particular, like the Meritzen was what I was having in that moment. And it was like maybe 2011. And so it was pretty early for me on my sort of trajectory, but it took the introduction of a new sort of flavor profile to get me to the point to where I thought, okay, this is actually something I want to dive into. Whatever I, what you just said reminded me of how, how I think of gateway beers which is different than the way gateway the term gateway beer is often used. It's, it's often used to describe a beer that is so incremental from what most people think of as typical beer, right? Like a Miller Lite or a Bud Light or something um, that they think like, oh, you know, this will get somebody in the door. And what I find so often is that like people are just like, okay, so I taste that, but like, so what, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not much of a gateway to anything. It's like a gentle grade <laughs> of something. The moments that I think uh, people have really been turned on by beer have been these things that just pick them up and transplant them to like some sort of parallel universe that they can't get back from. And that's what that is for me. And I remember the first time my father-in-law, who's a lifelong Coors Light drinker, uh, we were able to drag him to Bereave Avant for my birthday one year. My, my wife made him come. And he tried this beer and that beer. And they were like, oh, this one's kind of like a lager. Maybe you could try this. And he was like, this is all terrible. I hate this. You know, it's not what I, it's not the thing I drink. And then he had a, he had a pink peppercorn Saison. And he was just like, somebody tell me what that is. He's like, because I want another one, but I don't understand what I'm tasting. And like to this day, that's the only crap beer he's ever said he's, he's enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. There's something about being like transporting somebody and really just knocking them off their their stable foundation that uh, to me, that's a gateway beer. Maybe it's like a stargate of a gateway beer. <laughs> but to me, that's the most effective version. Yeah. Was there something in particular about the beer that he found enjoyable? Was it like a flavor? It was definitely flavor. Yeah. yeah, flavor. And and the more he talked about it, the more I think texture was kind of a piece of that for him. But it was hard to describe that because he's not used to talking about the texture of beer. I mean, it's a hard thing for anybody to talk about if you're not you know really used to it. Um, and even then. So I don't know. I, I, and and there was I think it was just the surprise, the surprise of that flavor. It just put him in a different spot. He wasn't evaluating it anymore. He was curious about it. And I think that's a that's a unique position to be in. Yeah, and Vivant's also like a pretty place too. The place in which you have that experience can matter quite a bit. Like you were mentioning Map Room as a place where you had a transformative experience. For me, it was the thing that was in front of me, the food. The setting in a place like that, because you said it took like a little bit of time for the flavors and the experience to maybe sink in for your father-in-law. I wonder if space had something to do with it. I'm sure it did. I mean, those things affect us whether we know it or not, right? So that's what, I mean, you and I talk about those kinds of things all the time. I don't know, for me, it's like, it's it's the difference between just a single star in the sky and a constellation that has a story around it that you're like, you know, you start telling stories about bulls and bears in the, in the, in the constellations. Uh, To me, that's the difference. And I can never pick out a singular star in the sky, but I can pick out the big dipper. Right. And like, that's how memory works and that's how associations work. And so where you were and what you were tasting and who you were with, like all those things are part of a constellation of a memory and they can get blurry and fold over on each other all the time. Like the, it's like, which, which memory of Cezanne Dupont is my memory at this point? I don't know because I remember, the, I remember being at the map room and I remember the mo- the first moment, but do I remember how that tasted or do I remember the moments I've had with Cezanne Dupont ever since all the way to like getting to go to the Valley and taste it at Brasserie Dupont uh, alongside Olivier and like just have this moment of just like, now I'm tasting it here, you know, and it's different there. And so like, I don't know, what does Cezanne Dupont taste like? I just have this memory hole that it goes down. That's all I've, that's all I've got. I've just got layers of constellations of it now. Uh, and you can never taste it again for the first time, which is maybe the sort of beautiful sadness of it. So this origin story that we've got at the map room, hanging out at beer school, do you find yourself telling that story differently? Do you find that depending on the place in which you're telling that story or retelling 
selling it or who's around you or what that subcontext is plays into what you grasp on from that memory? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think I gave you maybe like the, the quick version of it. You know, there was a few other steps involved, which was, you know, it wasn't my first time at beer school. I, it was maybe like my fifth or sixth. And so I'd already been taken on these like funny little journeys with other beers and they just didn't click the same way, but I was, I was still going. Obviously, there was something there for me. Um, and I think it was more than just the alcohol. You know, it was, it was a context I really loved. I love, I loved the sound of beer school. Um, being in the map room is just a great place. Like the, the audio quality of the map room is unique to that spot. And being in that back room while the front fills up over the course of a Saturday and you're in this like, you start out in the, you know, at like 11 a.m. or something like that. Or maybe it was like 1 p.m., something like that. It was kind of early in the day in the back of the map room. And just hearing the, the sound slowly changes as the place fills up over the afternoon. And then your world in that little bubble back there gets smaller and smaller as you like start to feel it a little bit more. And like, the, you know, the alcohol takes a little bit of an effect. And like Greg is sitting on a stool in the corner and his voice slowly, it goes from being professorial to being like the Charlie Brown teacher. Like, wah, 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 wah. And you just, you end up just feeling this, like it's dopamine and it's physicality and it's sensory kind of deprivation and overload at the same time. And you just end up feeling like lost in space. Um, And that's a big part of that for me. And that's what I loved about that little class that they would do. And then the day after just waking up and being like, I need to find, like, are there other Saison's? What is that? What did Saison even really mean? Like, I can't remember if that was like a style or if that was just that beer, like having to figure that out and going to Westlake View Liquors and just like, just being like a deer in headlights looking at those shelves analytically for the first time ever and just trying to figure out like what here is a saison what does that mean and like do i talk to the person at the register that you know are they going to tell me what a saison is and uh, and very quickly after that because i was at that shelf i had my first duchess de burgogne you know because of that and because it was like near the saisons mm-hmm. i don't know man it was a uh, it started sort of a waterfall of things but yeah there's so much more to that that feeling and that memory for me than just the the quick origin story, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What steps happen after that discovery are really sort of interesting. I think I remember having like very much like a romance almost with these ideas and the things that I was reading about online about how these beers were made and what the process was and imagining all of the things that I can experience with it. Fortunately and unfortunately, this beer has a very unique smoke profile. So there was only so much that I could find that was precisely like it. But it took me around the world in a lot of ways. And to me, this sort of time frame that we were talking about with beer was a time, and the Map Room is a great example of a place that catered to this audience and this idea of beer being a sort of global beverage and being something that has specific cultural expressions based on where it's from. Um, I remember them having yeah. shells of National Geographics in there. Yes. Like that communicates the world, you know, and the maps that were all over the place. And Mm -hmm. that sparked a lot of like childlike memories for me of my grandfather, like being a subscriber to National Geographic. And that was my exposure to the wider world coming from a tiny little town. I don't know. Yeah, that place was layered for me, for sure. That's funny. My brother was a National Geographic subscriber as well. And I think for me, at least like that time, I was actually traveling quite a bit, working with musicians and bands like all over Northern Europe. And so it gave me something more to look forward to in those journeys and to like seek out because it was like discovering a whole new interest that you didn't know was there. And then applying the analytical skills that you have from interest A to this new interest 
be. For you, like getting into good beer hunting and finding your sort of like outlet for how you're going to like take this interest and run with it. Were there other things that you wanted to do with beer before good beer hunting came about? What was the genesis of that? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things were happening in parallel. Um, but it wasn't a conscious influence too much. I was a, I was an innovation strategist at a, at a firm that, uh, we, our job was to do a bunch of like ethnographic research and like market factors and future casting and all this stuff and like try to help technology and consumers and companies figure out like what they could do next. Right. And we were usually working five to you know, five plus years ahead of the curve. And one of our clients at the time at this, this firm that I was at was Miller, um, before they were Miller Coors and we were doing a bunch of like, ridiculous packaging innovation for them, you know, like the, 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 the labels that turn blue when they're cold and shit like that, you know, like very gimmicky, but sort of based in storytelling and like brand attribute kind of stuff. And some of it was better than others. And oh man, we used to have to come up with a hundred ideas every three months, like literally a hundred. Uh, and some of them were so ridiculous because we just needed to hit a hundred sometimes and we just had no more brain cells left. <laughs> So I was working on that and learning a lot about the beer industry uh, from the macro level, right? And just understanding like how, from a strategic perspective, how complicated it was, how restricted it was, um, and all the things you couldn't do and, you know, how angry people get when you add a penny to a package cost (laughs) at that scale, you know? And like, I was just in a crash course learning about the beer industry that way. And at the same time, I was having these like very personal moments based in and around like specific beers like DuPont or Kraft, you know, as I would travel to Michigan and I went to Green Bench for the first time and I just found a guy in there building his own stools so he could open his own bar and like having those very small cottage industry kind of uh, occasions that I would bump into people. And slowly but surely, I started to sort of see how those worlds might intersect at some point in a major way. And of course, they'd already been intersecting for decades, but there was something that felt like it was emergent. And when you're a strategist, like, that's what your brain is always looking for is like, what are the things that are going to cause an emergence of some sort? Like, you know, the guy building his own stools in Michigan, is he connected to somebody in California doing this other thing? Like, well, sort of, but not directly. And they're not working together. They're just in the same space and they have similar ideas and similar drives. And if there's enough of them, something's going to happen. And so I was kind of just like, those things, those two experiences were happening in parallel. I was falling in love with the beer industry as a strategist and like the complications and the history of it. And I was falling in love with it from like one beer at a time at the local level uh, in a very personal way. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until I was working at my second agency that the blog had grown because I started writing about beer in a way that nobody else really was at that time. It was like this blend of narrative, but then also like some business acumen and strategy thinking around it. A lot of photos. People called it a photo blog, which always, which was always charming to me because like, I guess that was sort of like the, that's how it became a personal project for me is because I graduated with an emphasis in photography from my undergrad. But when I graduated, I mean, the time you and I went to college, like you couldn't just leave and buy like a $700 digital camera. You could buy a $12,000 digital camera. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I hated the darkroom as a, as a, as a film shooter. I hated it because I was much more of a graphic design mindset. And so when I left school, there was no way I was ever going to get a digital camera. And I was like, well, I guess that's that. But then micro four thirds came out, you know, like 10 years later. And so I picked up an old Panasonic Panasonic GF1 uh, and this guy named Craig Maud, who lives in Japan, who's a really well-known writer and photographer now, he had written this little diagnostic about the future of Micro Four Thirds and he got that particular camera and he was like, this is super cool for these reasons and showed photos that he had taken. And he had a very National Geographic kind of like lifestyle. He would travel all over the world and, and take pictures that belonged to National Geographic, in my opinion. And I was like, well, shit, that camera is kind of affordable. Like, I think I could stretch for that. You know, it was maybe a grand total. So I picked that up and just started using it as a personal shooter, just kind of get the muscles going again. And the places I was going were breweries and like exploring around those. And so I started taking pictures of that. And then it's like, well, what am I going to do with these pictures? And then it's like, well, then you start putting them into a blog. And it's like, well, what's going on in that blog? Why does that exist? And it's like, well, I, I tried to get my friend Doug 
it was right after the map room experience. I bought the URL for Good Beer Honey. And I tried to get my friend Doug, uh, who was a designer. I was like, you and I should just like use this as like our own little communique to each other about the beers we've been drinking and what we can discover. And we could just use it to share notes. And I'll never forget. He was like, yeah, I don't really like internet shit. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so bummed because I had a picture of him and me each playing Big Buck Hunter. And I was like, this is the perfect pictures for us on on the Good Beer Hunting blog. And it was just like such a goofy idea. And he just didn't want to do it. And so I ended up just using it to like catalog my own little personal journey. Um, And it just ballooned. The, the blog ballooned, and then my interest in beer as an innovation concept ballooned when we got AB InBev as a client. And then all of that came back together again when I wrote a little white paper. Do you remember when, um, I think it was called Medium.com, uh, when that launched? I sat down to lunch one day, and I was, I was working in a lot of tech. And I was like, well, I'm just going to see what this platform's about. It's a new blogging platform. I'd been using like you know WordPress and Tumblr before that. It seems kind of cool. And I wrote this thing called Meet Your Maker. And the, the gist of it was, it was combining my two things for the first time. It was the largest corporate brewers in the world were going to start making IPAs and other beers that were getting popular. It's a given. That's how those oper- that's how those companies operate. When there's enough of a, an audience for something, they'll try it. And we can't stop them. You're never like they're going to make it as good, if not better, in a lot of ways, right? Eventually, it's going to revert to the mean. But what they can't do, and what the challenge that they probably have and are thinking about or should be thinking about, is how are they going to get anybody to give a shit, right? Because like that's what smaller sort of craft-based cottage industry brewers have is everybody gives a shit no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And these were the two superpowers like, and neither one could find that middle. Like little guys were going to take forever to scale up if ever. And the big guys were never going to be able to get people to care. Mm-hmm. And so like, how's that going to work out? And that was the gist of this little thing. I, I took me 30 minutes, put it out on medium.com. Nothing happened. You know, I was just like, oh, that's a cool little platform. And three days later, we got a call. My company got a call from AB InBev and they said, we want to talk to Michael Kaiser. And they basically, what happened was somebody at AB, who was a brand manager for Shock Top at the time, got that, found that thing on medium.com and printed it off and handed it to his boss, Adam Oakley, basically as a white paper. And he was like, this is our problem. This is what we've got to fix. <laughs> and that was the big, that was the moment all those things came to a head and, and something bigger started for sure. Did you ever find that some of the values of a smaller producer were conflicting with the values of a larger producer? Oh God, they're completely from different planets. Absolutely. The structurally, they can't touch each other. You know, it's like oil and water. It's like two, you know, it's like positive, negative energy. Like they just, they fit, like it, you can't do it. Um, but there are, Often, in my experience of working with big and small companies, there are often individuals within those large corporations that embody that weird in-between space. They love what's happening at the small level in a deep and personal way. Uh, they also love the the sort of opportunity and the and the impact you can have working with a really large company to do like really cool shit sometimes. And so those are the people that are often trying to make something happen in that space that can't be occupied. <laughs> <laughs> and that you know that road is littered with failures and death. Uh, that is that is that is a abandon all hope. You who went to here kind of place. But cool shit happens there every once in a while, and it's usually the, it's usually because of specific individuals that can make that happen. And they usually have a very short window of opportunity to do it. There's enough of a market factor that their peers around them don't understand, uh, and so they get a, they get sort of an exceptional amount of liberty to try something. And there's not enough of an interest from the corporation to like really make it suck yet. <laughs> they don't, they don't try to optimize it yet because it just gets, it enters this sort of like off book skunk works kind of zone. Uh, and those, those people are usually there on average on about two years, you know, before they move on to something else because they get tired of the constraints or they want to go try a different industry or something. But that's my, that's my experience is like if you can find that person who's starting that gig at the right time 
uh, and they want to connect with what's going on in the, like the more interesting part of the, the universe of whatever they're in, in this case, beer, uh, you've got a year to 18 months to try and pull off something cool uh, mm-hmm. before it all just like evaporates again. <laughs> yeah, just for timeline context here, what you're saying to me sounds a little bit like 2011, 2012, when there were a slew of like AB acquisitions. And to me is what sings is that these were companies that were brought in by a larger firm. They didn't really know what to do with this new toy. It sounds like it could very well have been someone's strong-willed individual's initiative. And then an AB or a Miller just lets it run for a while. While. Until the business catches up to it. Exactly. And then they're like, why are we spending so much money to get so little? And the moment that question gets asked by somebody who's paying attention, it's, it's kind of game over for a little while. But they all go through cycles. You know, more people come in and then they, you know, they, they have a fire under them and they want to try something. And so it, there's like little emergences even within large corporations. We tend to, the thing that's always frustrated me about beer consumers, and I guess consumers in general, is like they tend to talk about large corporations as faceless. Mm-hmm. And it's well, you know, I get where that sentiment comes from. They could certainly behave that way. Um, but they're not faceless to people like me who know who those faces belong to, right? Like those are like I like those are groups of people uh, that are every bit as known to me as you know the people down the street at Haymarket, uh, and sometimes better. Um, and so when you, you know, the the phrase, you know, like you should know who makes your beer. It's like, well, I yeah, no, I know who makes the beer in St. Louis. <laughs> Like that's a real person to me, um, and but I, that's not to. I, I don't mean to like undercut the sentiment because I get what that's about. Um, but facelessness is kind of a. It takes two to create a faceless kind of scenario, right? Like you have to not pay attention and not care enough to even look into it. But you also need opportunities to be able to do that, which you don't usually have with large corporations. Uh, that's the that's the the double edged sword of that. This exact sort of type of narrative that you're talking about with people that are like faceless that are a part of an organization. Did you consider writing about these types of people like pretty early on with GBH? How did you sort of square this sort of like inherent interest that you you were seeing that lined up professionally with what you were doing. You have your own interests too. How did it square with a blog and with the sort of storytelling? Because it's easy to tell a story about a brewery and to do a profile. Maybe it was harder back then because it wasn't as developed. Yeah. Well, it's also when you're writing about the craft level, you're often writing about a business that is human sized, right? Like we can all kind of wrap our heads around a dozen people working together. Um, it's really easy when it's like two people that are co-founding something out of a garage. Like we can wrap our heads around that. It's human sized. But a corporation with a thousand employees, you know, we don't think of that as human sized, even though most of us, you know, I shouldn't say most because I don't know, but a lot of us go to work in places like that and we think of them as kind of human places. But we somehow we can't connect our, our experiences being corporate cogs to what it's like, you know, that there are there must be people inside of that corporation too. <laughs> like we somehow can't connect those dots very well. Or we only connect the negative aspects of it rather than not just and not the positives. But it's very easy to tell human sized stories to humans. It's just like it's that's as old as humanity itself, right? Um, but when you try and talk about when you try and tell a story about a much larger business, you can often kind of it's very impenetrable in a lot of ways. And it's like who gets to speak for it becomes a little bit political sometimes. And what are they allowed to say? Like all the things that make it successful as a human sort of organizational construct belie its ability to speak with a voice that is an individual or even just a few individuals because they all have this like relational responsibility to hundreds of other people now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, you know, we summarize that a lot as like, Oh yeah, I got to run it by the lawyers. And it's like, well, sure. But because all of these other people are connected to that and depend on it and you know, their relational aspect 
really fucking matters. You know, it's not just the dollars and cents and legalese of it. It's like, how does this impact our team if I talk about this? And mm-hmm. um, and that's an incredibly complicated thing to try and tell a story about. So those those stories end up being told as business stories rather than as human stories. It's very difficult to kind of make it both. But I always strove to make it about both. If you were to go and photograph a sightline story, because that's kind of where you're heading with that, how would you photograph a sightline story? Hmm. That's a great question because we don't, do we? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. How would you photograph a sightline story? Well, uh, we, we just told the story about the origins of Twisted Tea. And we've recently did, you know, a few years back, we told one that was super popular and unpopular about Mick Ultra. And these are like corporate beers. You know, these are corporate products. Um, we photographed those by taking the product and showing the lifestyle of that product. So we shoot it on the retail shelf in the cooler. And that's not normally where we shoot pictures of beer at all, right? We shoot, we shoot them in bars or houses and like people enjoying them. They're part of the context of, of enjoyment. But when we shoot those, they're business stories first and foremost. So we shoot them in the place where that transaction happens. And that's maybe a unique moment in those stories for us. Like to even think about it that way it becomes a little disembodied. But then we also try and combine that with like, you know, with McAltra, it was like, these are CrossFit people that, you know, that supposedly love this. And they're like, well, here it is in that context. And here's a bunch of CrossFit people drinking McAltras, you know, we try to be like as as authentic to the reality of that product as we can in some ways. But to shoot sort of a, an, like an analytical story, how would you shoot that? You can't be there at the moments when the things that are important to that thing happen in most cases. I'm reminded of a story that Brendan Kiernan, Brendan Kearney told us uh, that involved, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was about, but it was, uh, it was a major Belgian brand that he was talking about that had been acquired by, I think, AB. And he told the story almost like he was introducing a movie script. And the beginning of that story bounced from like corporate headquarters in Belgium to a high-rise office where somebody was picking up a fax in New York City. Now, AB's high end is located there. Down to a wholesaler who was getting an email about something. And he told the story in a way that you can almost imagine these as scenes in the intro to a movie that very quickly give you context for like how widespread this thing is, but also how small those moments are. And that's a perfect example when I say you can't be there at the moment that something happens for that story is because you can't be there when that guy gets that fax. Mm-hmm. You know, like you'd almost have to be embedded for like six months with somebody to like be able to capture that kind of richness and texture, which would be a fascinating challenge to try and pull off <laughs> the more I think about it. I think one of the things that I find with business content on a show is that it's terribly fascinating to a very small number of people, and it's hard to make that shit sexy. And you make a good point about it being a non-human scale or a non-immediately relatable scale, but the photography element is also really interesting because there's not only the depiction. I'm almost thinking of just like a 7-Eleven shelf with, this is where this thing lives, and this is where CrossFit people get off their bikes and go. That's to what those pictures were, and they were compelling. Uh, but they were, yeah. But it's a it's a limited scope. It's truthful to what that actually is. And you can't polish it too much. <laughs> I mean, they are skews. They are units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something for me. There's something kind of exciting about telling a story so authentically that you're not afraid to show something on a shelf as a unit, as a skew, because like, I don't know. I remember the first time I shot a beer, it was over at the beer temple and I shot, uh, it wasn't McAlter. It was something else, uh, that we did an unrated story on. It was like the story of that beer. And it was, it was a larger brand. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I shot a picture of it in the cooler at the beer temple. 
And like, he's got these great LED lights in there. And so like the color of the photo was just like sharp and fucking slick and commercial and like the reflections in it. And it just looked to me, it just looks sexy as hell as a photograph. Mm -hmm. I think to anybody who was looking for the context of a beer, that is like a very boring context. You know, (laughs) you're like, yeah, that's the last thing I see before I reach in and grab it. That's all. That's the moment that, that that exists. But I remember getting a text from John Barley and he was just like, this shot is super cool. He's like, you, you don't shoot pictures like this of beer ever. Like that was really unique. And like, he was really drawn to it. I think uh, he was, he's the co-founder of Salamoth and he's very much on the commercial side of it. And I think for, I think it spoke to him as somebody who does experience that side of beer a lot, um, but doesn't have anywhere to go with those memories or those visuals. Like it's just part of his world. It's like a wholesaler or a, uh, um, or a rep or, you know, somebody in sales, like, the things they see are fax machines and coolers and retail shelves and dust and shit like that. So mm-hmm. um, his comment, to him articulating that that connected with him and the fact that it connected with me, but I couldn't articulate why. I think that sent me on a whole direction to shoot for a while of like when I followed Matt Modica around town as a ho- as a Windy City wholesaler. And like mm-hmm. I just I embedded with him for like two days and we, I went, I went to every account he went to. I listened to every conversation he had. I took pictures of him pouring out samples and getting told, fuck you and people not showing up for meetings and um, yelling at him for more zombie dust and him telling you, fuck you, you're not getting more zombie dust. You know, and like capturing all of that was like, I don't know. It gave me this mindset towards commercial sort of embeddedness that uh, I had not personally experienced for me as a beer writer and a beer consumer and a beer like lover that way. I guess, you know, those moments kind of, uh, they were they were sort of last frontiers for me almost in terms of what's possible to experience in beer that I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen it. So what we're talking about is three tiers of the beverage ecosystem. You have the brewery as the origin, the distributor in the middle, which is precisely what you were talking about with going around with a rep, Matt, and the third being the retailer, which is where you were going with him. And distributors in general are notoriously a little challenging for the media to oh, they get won't, access yeah, to. They won't talk to you about anything usually. You have they, to really work it. They don't. For you, did you sort of realize the uniqueness of this sort of story? You also did a story on Lakeshore, too, that got a lot of attention. To me, as a reader, this was the first time I'd really seen this type of writing about a wholesaler and how all these interactions worth because the on-premise is really a black hole. I've made no discernible dent in that black hole. <laughs> but, but talk about the coming together of that and why it's important to try to keep getting that piece of information, that meat of the sandwich. Well, I think, I mean, number one, there's a lot of real people doing that work. And I think when, you know, I, I understand the sort of reasons why the middle tier would prefer to not be in the spotlight. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on there that consumers don't know. And if they did know, maybe wouldn't necessarily like, you know, they don't like thinking of their beer in that way, uh, just emotionally. And then also nobody likes to think about beer these days as something that is tightly controlled or regulated or like, you know, monopolized in any particular way. And so like, you know, all the, all the feelings that go towards the big corporate brewers could are very transferable to a lot of multi, you know, multi-generational wealth that exists in the middle tier with a lot of good old boys who are holding that thing, you know, hostage in a lot of ways. And I think one of the reasons why I I was able to follow somebody like Matt around is because he was working for a very unconventional wholesaler. Uh, they were craft only for the most part. And, uh, they came, you know, they were started by the guys who started Two Brothers Brewing. And so they had this ethos about them and this renegadeness about them. And they thought of themselves extremely differently, even if they weren't, even if they were only incrementally different in the end. Um, but they thought about themselves differently. So when they saw, I think I can only imagine that when they weighed the risk and opportunity of having somebody like Good Beer Hunting follow them around, the risk and reward conversation they probably had was number one, you know, we're getting squeezed by the big guys. 
And so like anything that exposes that we are unique in some way is probably a net positive for us. <laughs> and I think pay to play was as, was as much of a problem in Chicago as it's ever been. And it's always been a problem. And so exposing some of that certainly helps them because, you know, they, they believe and, and perhaps rightly so that they don't engage in that at all. But I, I you know, we, have, we all know that there's a spectrum of pay to play and some of that gets pretty, pretty fuzzy. Uh, so I don't know. I think they saw, a, you know, a net positive, you know, in the end um, that was worth the risk and the downsides of it. Um, I don't think they expected me to witness anything that would come back on them as particularly negative, at least. <laughs> if anything, it was going to be negative towards the entire tier. Um, but they were getting, you know, they were, in a, they were, it was a time when they were getting squeezed and things were consolidating really quickly and like getting tough. And so they had been purchased by that I don't that think point, they had right? been purchased by then. No, that was still, they were still independent, but there was a lot of pressure on them to sell to Reyes. Uh, this was the, I think this was probably around the time, if not the time when they were getting a lot of precious pressure from the Loganitas folks, um, to roll a lot more trucks to a lot more points of distribution in Chicago for Loganitas because they were scaling up in Chicago with the new plant. And Windy had limited resources. They were the small challenger craft house and Loganitas had far outgrown them and had demands that were way beyond them. Uh, and the only way Loganitas was going to get what it wanted was to, was to get them to sell uh, to Reyes. Uh, and they were very forceful about that. Um, and so this was, they were particularly under pressure in a way that was existential, not only to their existence, but their values. And as we know now, they've basically been almost entirely consumed by Reyes. Uh, that sale happened. Uh, they were independent for a while, uh, and then culturally, slowly over time, those things just get consumed. You know, like anything does as part of a larger organization. It's impossible to stay completely apart forever. You know, because the market's going to change, and those factors that you thought you were operating under are going to be different in the future. So, and I mean, wholesale consolidation's only gotten more rapid since then. It's kind of the dirty little secret of wholesaling right now is like it's just like people are just taking huge chunks out of it in consolidation. And Reyes is probably the most aggressive one. I mean, what they're doing in California is insane and impressive all at the same time. It is interesting. You were talking about multi-generational situations, and that's a lot of the independent wholesalers are multi-generational and people are selling out and doing other things in life with their multi-generational wealth or their own. And Reyes is there to scoop it all up. And do you think that craft beer is going to come on a Coca-Cola truck soon? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it seems like it's going to have to for Coca-Cola's sake too, right? Like there's only so many places in the market they can go. I mean, soda's not doing great. <laughs> you know, like the, that whole category needs some kind of reinvigoration. Uh, and I think what we've seen from alcoholic Mountain Dew and Topo Chico uh, hard seltzers and things like that, like people are looking for new ways to expand those brands. I mean, simply orange juice. Simply orange juice is going to have a hard spiked version of it coming soon, for, based on what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, me and Brian Roth, who's our, our sightlines editor and Kate Bernat, our sightlines reporter, we joke all the time that like. We're just approaching the singularity moment where there is a hard and non-alcoholic version of every single thing. (laughs) And it's becoming sort of darkly hilarious how fast that's coming true. And so when I think about, like, is Coca-Cola going to be rolling those trucks? Like, I don't know, there might be at some point a line in the sand that the feds are going to draw on what brands can do non-alc versus alc, you know, based on market confusion and consumer confusion and the dangers of that. We haven't seen any indication of that yet. We we mostly see those companies sort of self-regulating away from that line just barely, but they're getting so much closer than they ever have before. Um, and then, you know, three-tier laws, just about separating some of these these players to avoid monopolies on things um, is going to be a big deal. I mean, we just saw, uh, who was it that just bought the, uh, the umbrella company for the Oscar Blues brands? That was Monster. Yeah, I mean, that one for me was just a shot across the bow at regulations because um, now they're going to be 
they have a partnership with Coca-Cola for co-packing and distribution or some mix of those things. And now they're going to own their own facilities and a lot of them around the country to produce alcohol. Um, and they're also going to be theoretically producing the brands they just bought, whether they give a shit about those brands or not is a huge question. I mean, those brands could just be on the chopping block. They might just want the facilities. I mean, they sold, they sold it at a price that was embarrassing. Um, they basically sold it for VC debt. So that doesn't, that's no indication to me that they give a shit about those brands at all. Uh, they found no value in them in the sale and the VCs found no value in them in the sale, which is scary. So I don't know. The, so suddenly monster is just going to be spread across three tiers like that uh, in a way that like, I just don't know how you untangle that unless you just make everything legal. So I think we, we could be approaching a moment where there's a line in the sand and people are going to start getting targeted for violating these things in a way that kind of not violating them legally as much as in principle, right? Like, they're, mm-hmm. And then we're going to have to redraw those lines or we're just going to get rid of the lines and then it's game on. And there's a lot of people betting on that right now. I mean, cannabis is betting on that, right? Like everybody's betting on no rules coming up soon. And the pandemic accelerated some of that thinking pretty, pretty hugely. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think the big question for me is not whether it's going to roll on Coca-Cola's truck. It's going to be like, whose truck can it roll on now? It's everybody's potentially. Um, and that's fascinating to me. At the moment that we might have the most consolidation in the middle tier, we might also see it disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a pressure point moment. It is very interesting to see how the pressures are coming from all sides on the three tier system. And one could argue that if you're taking a traditionalist standpoint, this is the time we actually need this more than any if you want to follow that string of thought. But you can also look at other countries where there is no three tier system. And if you make beverage, you make beverage. And if you make food, you make food. And so whether there's alcohol in it or not is less of a concern because of social mores more or less right and there's a structural reason why i would favor just getting rid of the lines and that has to do with the amount of market share that somebody like ab has lost over time and where the delta is which i don't know of when it stops making sense for them to invest in the middle tier the way they have which happens to be the trucks that everybody else rolls on to because if that middle tier is no longer getting enough value from the corporate brewers and there's too many little brewers, that's when people sell off and it reconsolidates and then it's nobody gets a, nobody can get in line anymore. You have no access to market. Um, and so we've already seen for the last 10 years that smaller brewers need more variety in terms of channels to market. And they're doing that because that pressure is already working downward on them. But we also need somebody like AB to have a viable path to market <laughs> for any of those trucks to roll at all. In which case, non-alcoholic and these things that are outside the beer segment like seltzer need to make up some ground for them and their wholesalers to have a viable business you know, relationship as well. And so it's just for me, it's kind of this this musical chairs of volume. And the more it starts to disintegrate categories, the more we need those three tier laws to be extremely flexible to enable everybody to continue rolling trucks. And that's what it's going to come down to at some point. As someone who worked between the distributors and as a retailer, I find that the wholesalers really did play a super important part in everything moving. And there is so much that they do that any small brewery, because it was never part of their business to begin with, they don't really sort of recognize the importance of that. I sort of wonder if the talk about getting rid of this is really what small breweries actually do want. Yeah, I mean, what they want is access to market uh, and the methods that are available for them to get that. Uh, I mean, they have to lobby for the things that are going to get them there, right? Um, whether or not that creates a worse outcome long term, it's like, well, 
if I'm a small brewer, like maybe I care about that, but I mostly care about the next 18 months. <laughs> right. And so like I, the rest of what you're talking about sounds like science fiction to me. It's so far in the future. And yeah. And so I think it's hard to ask small brewers to really care about the longevity of that when they are actually, they're existentially threatened every six months, you know, every two months. I mean, they're looking at payrolls, you know, they're trying to make that. And so access to market for them, they'll take it any way they can get it uh, if it works for them. And then they'll just look for the next opportunity to build on top of that. And so a lot of what's happened to disintegrate the middle tier and make it harder and, and make it harder to get distribution is the result of a lot of lobbying from smaller craft brewers who wanted more access to market. You became less important to wholesalers and then there was too fucking many of you. Uh, and then you're chipping away at corporate uh, brewers sort of value because velocity or uh, uh, volumes are, are shedding. Mm-hmm. And so like, you, so it's weird to feel sympathetic towards these like big time wholesalers in the middle, but like they had entire networks and ecosystems built on a stability in the beer market that no longer exists. Um, so the consolidation is is a two way street. Like people have to sell if other people are buying, and a lot of those people want out now because it's gotten too complex. You're you're spending a lot more money and doing a lot more work to sell the same amount of beer. Uh, so it's not the it's not. It's not as easy to just roll in and take over grandpa's thing anymore. You know, it's a, it's a hustle now. It is. And there's also the products assortment is more voluminous for every house and they're more complex to sell on their own. And the literature about what you are selling and all of the channels matters in a very different way. There's a great deal of intention of where everything is placed. There was for a while. I think that's, I think that's slipping away pretty quickly because those books, I mean, those a distributor's portfolio is like a McMaster catalog now. Like from maybe ten years ago, having two hundred products to having twelve hundred. Yep. So you know, you go to a distributor meeting on a Monday, and they're saying, "Hey, here's this new brewery we're picking up." Like, I don't know if I give a shit if I'm one of those people. You know, mm-hmm. like, please don't talk about this until there's a moment where it matters. That's yeah, it's an unenviable position for sure. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Michael Kaiser in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment and back to our conversation with Michael Kaiser. We just opened number two, so we're on the back nine now, as it were. Do you want to introduce what we're enjoying now, Michael, since this is the one you brought? Yeah, so this has been in there for a while. This is, I can't remember how they, these dates work, but it, was, it says it was bottled on September 14th, 2011. So I don't know if that makes it the 2011 or the 2012. I think I've always thought about it as the 2012, but it doesn't actually say. But this is the Goose Island BCS barley wine, uh, one of the earliest ones uh, that I've ever had. Holding up pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sort of leathery and raisiny, but also a lot of red fruit coming through in that, um, and like enough effervescence that it's still lively. Yeah, that's cool. These beers tend to hold really, really well, and this I, tastes like ping, yeah. this tastes like ping pong in my Fred 
Doug Senko's basement where we used to just open up bottles of the shit and play ping pong all night long. What a time. <laughs> Barley wine was a really important style for me as a drinker because I loved what we were having earlier. I love complex malt profile beers. They travel really well. So no matter where in the world they were from, you could expect something hearty and with structure to withstand. But I had a really weird history with Bourbon County. The first one I tried was in 2008. My brother was super into whiskey and barrel-aged beers, and he brought home some Bourbon County, and we tasted it, and I thought it was gross. I couldn't deal with all of the flavors that were bludgeoning my palate. It was just impossible, and it took a long time to work back into trying something that robust and, as I think I described it at the time, obnoxious, and the barley wine was actually the style that bridged into the higher alcohol richer, like more very, very malt-driven and dense beers. What do you think it was about the barley wine that helped you bridge? The sweetness, particularly the caramelized flavor profile. So I love dessert. I'm a fat kid. Like I love dessert and particularly like the sort of creme brulee thing and the caramelized flavors that you get on a lot of desserts that I like are present in the barley wine. At the same time, that caramelized flavor also is something that you find in anything that's grilled, meats, like all that stuff. And so all of that created different sorts of bridges for me to be able to relate to that flavor profile. And stouts came after that and also after an appreciation for West Coast IPAs came because then I understood the bitter profile that is acute in the Bourbon County stout, no matter whether it's young, like as my brother picked up on the release day in 2008, or if you have it with age, there's different bitter waves that come through on it. It's a style that is personal to me. And you were sort of talking before we started about how you chose it because this is around the time that we first met. And I remember I invited you to come to Local Option to photograph a certain guitar shred event. That's <laughs> right. Oh, the, the Catalina. The Catalina wine mixer. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That's mm -hmm. right. And that was what I thought of a lot with GBH and your interest in beer was that you were interested in documenting these experiences that people were having. And that certainly was a special one in terms of people standing on bar tables and shredding guitar. And I think it wasn't like you were profiling an event, which was unique in some respects for yeah, beer writing, because beer writing was reviews of beers. Or, yeah, it was or either like that interviews. or it was a story, and there's still a lot of blogs like this, which have value, but they sort of tell a story of like, then this, then this, then this, and then I went here, then I had this, then I went there, then I had this, and it just came, like, it's like it's a like chronological... A it was a beer diary, yeah. Yeah, yeah beer diary, exactly. But I think because I was so photographically driven, it tended to capture the feeling of being there rather than describing it in a lot of ways. So I didn't, you know, some of these, I mean, some of those stories were as long as any article you read. It just didn't feel like it because there were so many photos. You know, people called it a photo blog, even though there was 1,500 words. <laughs> you know? and so they just didn't feel like they were reading. Um, but the photos were, yeah, they were, it's funny, like, that's a great example of something for me that is, I had a fucking blast that night. But I wasn't on the bar. I wasn't shredding guitar. I was just like, moving around kind of conspicuously with my camera and like capturing these moments and trying to capture these like energetic gestures and like these moments of laughter and sound and like trying to capture a feeling, which is in some cases for an event like that, that is the way in which I love to exist there. Cause I'm not this like really gregarious, like showy type of person. And like, I don't really, 
I'm way too shy and uptight to like do any of those things sometimes. And I think a lot of times people think that, you know, if you're behind the camera, you're sort of like antisocial or you're hiding. But that's not what it is for me. It's like taking those, like looking at those things through a camera is like how I fall in love with those people, right? It's like I get to see them doing something in this pinnacle moment. And then I get to go home and look at it on a screen and I get to see the look in their eye and that smile when they do it that only I ever really get to see until I publish that thing. Like I get to capture a thing that that person's feeling that everybody else felt, but nobody knows what it looked like because it just, it moves. Everything is moving all the time. And for me, like that is, there's something really deeply human and like emotional about that for me. Like there's been times I come home and I start processing photos and I start to like, feel like I'm welling up a little bit or something, you know, because you're just like, fuck, like this exists right there in this moment, in this photograph. And like it exists there forever. It's like a Grecian urn, right? It's like, it's a scene that is still and tells a story forever about something. And for me, that's a, that's a way that I get to, you know, through my own personality or skill set or whatever, like I get to connect with those moments in a way that I love to connect to those moments. And so, yeah, going to a fucking Catalina wine mixer and like, I, I think I enjoyed it as much as anybody else, even though I never touched a guitar or <laughs> did anything outrageous or didn't jump up on any bars. But uh, man, I remember that. I remember that place in time. I could, I could see all the pictures in my head right now. It was very unique then. And I think that tying in you know, the beer we were drinking earlier, it was a moment where beer was very much a global thing. Like a bit of a phenomenon. And you expected to find, yeah, on a beer menu, you would, you would expect to find beers from far away and right down the street all at the same time. Yeah, I missed that moment. I missed that intersection of stuff from far away still being sexy and exciting and exotic. I feel like that piece is kind of worn off. People want, if it's not local, it doesn't exist, you know, in a lot of ways. I think that's one of the disconnects that beverage has experienced that is a byproduct of food moving in a certain direction. I think that food has really gone in a positive direction to where you're eating closer to where food is made. I think for beer to move the same way, I mean, it's a product with a very different shelf life and the ingredients more often than not are anything but local. The only thing that's local is the labor and the taxes, right? Right. I mean, we're certainly seeing an increasing diversification of the supply chain in terms of local, whether it's local hops or local malt or and, and whatnot, which is cool. Um, it's unlikely to scale. I mean, we have some exceptions, like what's happening in Maine right now around Allagash and some smaller producers like Bissell and Oxbow that are all sort of working in the wake of Allagash's million pounds of grain from Maine commitment, you know, which transformed a generation of farmers potentially, and if it continues to be successful. But that's the that's the outlier, you know. Everything else we're seeing is at such a tiny level. It's very important, mm-hmm. and those ecosystems are there now, which they didn't exist at all before. But it's still we have to be honest with ourselves about how small that is, you know, and mm-hmm. how much time and money goes into making the same end product in a lot of ways, and sometimes not, you know, sometimes not the same end product that you would like it to be. It's difficult. It's hard to get those things uh, to perform well, but they're getting better and better. The skill sets. It reminds me of the early days of brewing. Like um, if it existed at all, it was good. And then eventually, uh, there were so many people, and we had a second generation of skills, uh, and we had people that you know started at one brewery, moved to another, and then started their own. So now we have three careers, you know, kind of levels happening to, to where now, if you open up a brewery in Chicago, it better be fucking perfect, <laughs> you know. And it's because there's a generation of skill sets exist now um, that have moved through some of these. You know, there's a pedigree of what it means to be a brewer in Chicago now, or there should be in some ways, because you've had access to all of this education and experience. That 15 years ago, you didn't have access to that. And then consumers have had all that access as well. And so I think we're in the early days of malt, you know, local agriculture, and generally speaking, that is akin to those early days of craft beer where it existing at all is great and we're going to soak it up. 
but it's going to go through the same cycles of having to get really, really good the moment we have that second and third generation of skill sets happening. You know, so if you're down at Sugar Creek and you're, Creek and you're helping him do malt, like mm-hmm. um, when you open up your when you open up your own small malster in Southern Indiana, it better be pretty good because <laughs> you're going to be competing with the thing that came before you. Um, so I look forward to that moment. Agriculture is a very, very important part of beer, but certain segments of agriculture have been more successful on a consumer facing side and the marketing of the hop growers and the conglomerates around that have fared much better in terms of getting their names literally into beers in the way that maltsters had trouble with. And obviously some of that is that malt in some ways brewers view it as interchangeable, but hops have been able to elude some of that in some way. For you, pound per pound, malt is more important than hops in beer. From your perspective as someone who's both a fan of malty beers and then also as someone with a lot of strategy insight, do you think that maltsters can go after the same type of success that hop growers have had, or does that look different? I think it's definitely a different animal, and I think it's a mistake to try and replicate what happened in hops with malt. Um, I think, you know, because there's some unique things about hops that gave it that kind of distinct ability to create noise. And that is that it's, um, most people don't know what hops are. So there's that moment of like, what? Uh, and then there's a distinct visual of what a hop cone looks like that has just, I mean, God, we have 8,000 breweries and 7,000 of them have a hop cone in the logo, right? Like, so they made it their identity. Um, it's not something that is found in kitchens. Most people don't see it on normal farms. You didn't grow up with it. It only existed in tiny little pockets of the U.S., uh, and so all of that makes it sort of unknown, but also exotic for those same reasons. And so when somebody tells you that this hop, you know, is in a, a very important part of the beer and they build a case around it and a story around it, um, it becomes a really easy thing to focus on and, and confirm. There's a confirmation bias to it. With malt, all of those things are uh, the opposite. Most of us know what barley and wheat kind of looks like because we've seen it our whole lives and it all just looks generic and it looks boring it's been in every miller logo you know like the little the the little sort of chaff at the top and um and we we all sort of know what it is and don't give a shit at the same time and like actually don't know what it is uh so we're all convinced we know it already and nobody likes to learn about something they're convinced they already know about right um Hops came along and surprised people that they didn't know what that meant. Uh, so everybody wanted to learn. And so I think the, and what it does in a beer is, you know, hops is a far more distinct at the surface level kind of experience with the aromas and the tastes. Um, and you have some that taste like cherries and you have some that taste like garlic, you know, like you, these are the, the spectrum is huge and it's very easy to point to it and say, I get that. Whereas I think what's happening on the malt side is a much more integrated approach, much more layered Um you know, sure, there are single malt, single hop beers, but there are, you know, in general, you don't use a, you know, unless you're making a Pilsner or something like that, which is usually meant to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not making a single malt beer with a huge amount of expression very often, right? And not for that purpose. And so it just doesn't have, you know, it reminds me, it reminds me of what we talked about with, um, you know, the, the sort of rock star brewer founder thing of craft mm-hmm. beer that is easy to wrap your head around and how complicated it is to think about an organization with a thousand people. It's like, well, it's kind of malt and hops to a degree. Uh, like malt exists in an integrated, layered, almost indiscernible and undistinct format in how you experience a beer. Uh, it's not as easy to point at it and saying, I see its face, right? Whereas hops is very much designed to be exactly that, at least this, and, and more and more so over the years, uh, has become much more distinct that way. So to the point where you make a beer with citra hops and you sell it no matter what. Now you make it with mosaic and you sell it no matter what. Malt is always going to be sort of like a, 
an integrated experience uh, full of nuance and, and and things. It's a and you're building on top of it. It's mm-hmm. the the base of a cake. I mean, everybody knows what the everybody tells you what a cake looks like by what's on top in the icing. Nobody tells you like what a cake looks like from the inside out. You know, when they describe it, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember it reminds me of uh, for my six year old's birthday this year. We asked him what kind of cake he wants, chocolate or vanilla, and he said dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a dinosaur flavor. I like that. And we were like, yeah, but okay, sure. We know you love dinosaurs and you would love to have that on a cake, but what do you want the inside to be like? And he was like, I don't, he just looked at us like he didn't understand the question at all. Like it didn't matter to him. So so my wife made a cake that was sort of like a, a lemon birthday cake kind of flavor. And he came back to us after taking three bites on his birthday. And he was like, I don't think I like the flavor of this cake. I think I want chocolate. And I was like, well, there's the light bulb moment, pal. We asked you what kind of cake you wanted, and you said dinosaur. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a, a lesson in there for me around like how consumers think about malt and hops. Um, a distinct surface level experience versus something that's much deeper and integrated, and and everything sits on top of. That's just a, that's a harder story to tell for sure. And I don't think that's I don't think you get to the hop story that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's more of a you know there's a foodways story. There's an agricultural story. There's a microeconomy story. Like these are boring in a lot of ways, but they also have a lot of layers and sexiness, and they matter to a lot of people. And if you can find a way to network that story, then it becomes a lot more like the food story, a lot more like what chefs care about and food, to, you know, uh, farm to table and things like that. Um, so there's clearly power in those stories. Slow food and farm to table was a big deal, but it took a lot, a lot of consensus building. Uh, and a lot of networking and a lot of like crystallizing the language in a way that consumers could understand. Malt will always be an important part of beer from a construction standpoint. It's going to be important and hops, you know, can come in and out of fashion, even just based on the varieties alone. Whereas if you look at the sort of staticness of the malt side of recipe design outside of adjuncts, those malts are still the same for most styles. So I guess that's the other side of the the battle that they're fighting is uh, the adjunct side is when people are interested in sweetness or maltiness or grain and things like that, a lot of that's getting covered up with gimmickry on the adjunct side now that's like that's replacing the character that you should be getting from the malts in a lot of ways which is unfortunate but that's a phase mm-hmm. you know there's there's gonna be seasons to all of this how do you feel about adjuncts as a fan of beer as an individual it almost never registers for me as something to care about it just doesn't and like but i'm also like slow to talk down on or make fun of because that's also kind of uninteresting to me i guess you know uh like I can be disappointed when I walk into a bar and I can't get a stout that is just a stout. Like that's a disappointing moment for me. But I don't feel motivated to like go to Twitter and lament about that as if like the whole like the sky is falling or something. Or like these there's a lot of East Coasters, I think, in the last few years that have been like, everything is an hazy IPA. I can't get any other style than a hazy IPA. And I'm like, well, yeah, man, just I mean, take a beat, you know? Like beer is a cyclical, fashionable industry, and that's not new. You know, like one of the biggest lessons I ever learned was uh that only fairly recently has Cezanne DuPont been the number one seller of Brasserie DuPont. Like, and that blew my fucking mind when he told me that, because in my mind, that is the only beer they make. And I know they make other beers, but that's the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, but for years they had to make, uh, they had to make a Pilsner to compete with German Pilsners that were coming into the market. And that was by far, you know, 70, 90% of what they made. Uh, and then they had to make a super Cezanne to compete with Belgian specialty for a while, which is Wanette. 
Um, and, you know, and to, at least in their minds, they, at least they got to make something Cezanne-like, but that's not what they were trying to produce in that moment. And then there's people down the road like Dubesson, which is older than the country of Belgium itself. And they were named, they had, they came, they named their band, uh, they didn't call it Dubesson, they called it Bushes. Uh, to name it after an English brewery so it would sound more like an English beer because that's all people cared about for a long time. And we're talking like a hundred years of patience. Mm -hmm. And so anytime I, anytime I hear people being impatient about whatever phase we're in, or I feel impatient about whatever phase we're in, I'm reminded of the moment of like, oh yeah, it wasn't until now, a couple hundred years in that Cezanne is now the number one seller of Brasserie Nouvelle. <laughs> and it's like, mm -hmm. who is anybody else to think they deserve the moment they want sooner? You know, like, but it also taught me that beer is very fashionable. I mean, we complain about haze as if consumers are chasing something that doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, crystal clear beer only became a thing as a fashionable response to the first haze <laughs> cycle, you know, like, so these are everybody, beer has always been associated with fashion and status and who's got what. And we're talking about, you know, class wars and shit like that. Like it has always been. So when we started when we started the source material side of, uh, of Good Beer Hunting with using beer history to tell stories about now, that became much, very much a driver for us. Is we, I started caring about beer history personally when I just started hearing you know, the, the, the refrain <laughs> coming back over and over and over again. I was like, man, it is, uh, everything that has happened before will happen again. You know? And it's like that Battlestar moment of just knowing that you're caught in the, the cycle and you're, just a, you're a blip in this much longer arc of things that just keep repeating. And I, I don't know, uh, I love that about beer. I love how ridiculous that cycle can be sometimes. Yeah, I think when things are closer to being wants rather than needs, that's really when you find these eccentricities and these unique sort of types of cycles because wants are highly predictable. You have to perform, you know, three or four different things throughout a day to maintain your uh, physical existence. But what you enjoy beyond that are the wants and everything around the wants is interesting. And we build all these like weird barriers around the wants, whether it's like you can't consume alcohol before a certain time or it has to be driven to you in a certain way or the wants always have these like really weird rules. And to me, that's part of what made it all interesting was all these weird barriers that didn't really make sense, but it was others arbiting others wants in some way. Yeah, big time. And, you know, if we were in a time, you know, like 15 years ago where finding certain things was difficult, I mean, it was called good beer hunting for a while. It is a stocked pond now, right? Like I have no trouble finding anything no I want anywhere. Yeah, there's no hunting. Uh, and like, and so when people complain about that stuff, I'm like, man, go to the go to the brewery around the corner from the brewery you're in right now, and you're gonna find what you want. Like, not every brewery has to cater to your individual interests. There are so many. Now, there's probably gonna be a time in the future where that's not the case anymore. We're gonna go through these like you know this accordion model of like how markets work. Like, we're gonna lose some things that we do maybe need at some point. Um, we've lost them before, mm -hmm. you know, like some of the styles that uh, I love now, like a Goza, you know, like uh, these were things that almost got lost to time entirely. Uh, farmhouse sales. I mean, things that I love as sort of like Cezanne adjacent. I mean, we're living in, we're living in the most available pinnacle exploratory experimental kind of version of that thing that has ever existed in time, you know? And like, I'm very aware that like that only exists maybe for a little while. You know, that's, there's no, there's no guarantee any of that stuff's going to be around. Like those are the things that I pay attention to is like, what are we really losing? Not do we have too much of the shit I don't want? Like, that's mm -hmm. not my problem. I can ignore, it's very easy to ignore the stuff I don't care about. 
what are you scared of us losing? With the way things have, uh, the, we started out by talking about imports. We are losing access to a lot of fantastic things. And that's not to say you can't get them, but it's going to become hard. Um, and so that, that moment is maybe returning sooner than I would prefer. For sure. I mean, Cezanne Dupont is a great example. Like its numbers are down. You know, they're they're going into sixteen ounce cans, trying to recapture a part of the market that just like has forgotten they exist because they don't. They're not in the preferred format, and that's real. I mean, I, I don't buy a lot of glass. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. those are slow purchases for me. It used to be a lot more common, and uh, so yeah, I think the import market is is in a very precarious position. But I also know that a lot of those brands have experienced these kinds of things before. It's not new to them. You know, I think. COVID aside, they don't really experience factors in the world that are unprecedented for them. And so most of them are in a pretty good longevity kind of situation. They'll wait for the cycles to come back. Um, But the importers and the wholesalers that depend on those brands might not be there when they want to come back. I mean, Shelton Brothers is a great example. There were dozens of brands that I love that we no longer have access to or certainly not in the same way because it no longer exists. It went out of business. It went bankrupt. Some of that was market factors. Some of that was not. Some of that was <laughs> internal business factors. But still, it's a great example of how quickly things can just go poof. And it's the companies and also the people, too. If they leave the industry altogether, then that particular passion that that person had that carried a really, really long way. Yeah, you and I have seen a lot of people leave the industry in the last few years. Uh, Mm -hmm. For a lot of reasons. And, you know, some of them are just people bored by it. They can't drink anymore. They're getting older. They can't keep up with it that way anymore. The money's not good enough. The market didn't keep growing the way it needed to to support, you know, what they ultimately wanted to to do with their lives. And and then we're also seeing a lot of women leave the industry, which is really troubling. I I think that's about to accelerate. I don't think that's going to slow down. I think we're going to see a lot of women leaving the industry for harassment, violence, assault, like culture. The culture. I am more upset about the what has happened with the culture of craft beer than I am any particular trend that I don't like in terms of beer styles. Like that doesn't matter to me at all. That comes and goes. But what I saw happen to the culture is maybe the thing that I lament the most. Um, that, that's a bummer. And again, not because of the preferential things about the culture. Uh, Cause again, it's easy to ignore the places in beer you don't want to go or the kinds of, you know, ticking culture and things like that. That's very easy to ignore. You can have your own experience with beer any way you want. Mm-hmm. But it became really unhospitable to large groups of people in a pretty like threatening way, you know? And the audience didn't grow the way I thought it could. You know, it didn't welcome in people at the margins of that culturally. And so it's not getting more interesting. Uh, it's losing out on like a lot of diverse perspective and a lot more fun to be had and a lot cooler ideas and places to go and people to be with. I mean, a culture that is stagnant is going to atrophy. You know, as much, you know, it's the same way with population, like culture is the same way. Um, so I don't know the monoculture of it. Uh, I'm, I'm really bummed it went in that direction. Um, and I'm hopeful that we're in the next few years, we're going to be seeing uh, a different kind of swing in that. I'm hoping, so I'm hopeful for that. I think that what you were talking about as far as demographics and inclusiveness and people feeling like they can participate in this culture that as a symptom of it also has a ton of gatekeeping. I have a huge background in the music industry in a genre that's also very guilty of it too. It's hard to see that happening with beer from the perspective of, again, like diversity and demographics, but also part of all of that is imported beer and expressions from other places because diversity diversity of voice is something that can be as local as what's around you. What are our neighbors east of us? What are our neighbors west of us? But it's also, as a larger culture, what is far east of us? What is far south of us? There was a presentation. Evan Rail invited me to the Eastern European Craft Brewers Conference in Budapest a few years ago. 
and the presentation I gave was about how um, craft beer is dead if we're just going to download it from the internet and open it up in Budapest, right? And just like hang a shingle that says craft beer and serve all the things you can get from America as craft beer, but now you can get them here. Like that's a major convenience, and there's certainly a value in having a, an American craft beer bar the way we love the Hopley for being a Belgian beer bar. Right? And it's great for expats, but who else is it good for? Right, it's not it's not seeding its own culture in a unique way. Um, and it, I mean, it was just like you know, it's like a McDonald's in every country. Like the, what was the what was the phrase that like two countries that both have a McDonald's never go to war with each other? It's like because you're the same fucking culture. That's why you think you're the same. Uh, and war is fought through otherness, you know? And um, when I was there, I was really encouraged to see a lot of Slovenian brewers really focus on agriculture and what they're getting from locally grown hops. And uh, a lot of Germans and Slovenians and, and, and other folks over there, that are they see grape growing and winemaking as a part of what they're doing in a, in a way that is way more rooted to the agriculture than we think of wine and beer here kind of working together. Uh, so a lot of them are using grape must and like natty wine sort of approaches to making beers and IPAs. And they're like really, really working with the flavors and the food ways and the expressions of their local agriculture and regional kind of tastes. And to me, that is the promise of what can happen at the local and craft level. And that only happens, you know, you can only learn about those things by going there and tasting them there. And I don't want to lose that. You know, I don't want to lose the ability to travel and taste new and see new cultures in a new context. Um, and I think there was a little while where it seemed like, American craft beer was just going to be the dominant culture everywhere. Uh, and that was kind of bumming me out for a while. I was really eager to see that go away. And I think we're seeing that fall by the wayside as local local cultures have started to kind of decide what they want to do with beer themselves. In the wake of American craft beer, American craft beer has been hugely influential. And I'm super proud of like how influential it's become. But more, more than just sort of a reaction to American craft or, or in the wake of American craft, it's as an extension of their hundreds to thousands of years of localized culture. And that's where I see a lot of value coming in is like those things integrating somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exciting to me. Yeah, because at a certain point when the dominant brewing culture, whether it be English at a certain point or whether it be German, recedes because of, frankly, like larger macro political forces, then what's left is the methods. And what do we learn from a technical side that gets folded into what the next sort of wave is? And and I think that pollination and that learning is really is super key. I mean, Christopher DeWolf wrote an article for us uh, about some brewers in Canada that were brewing just amazing Czech beers. And the story he wanted to tell wasn't the surface level story of like, hey, this brewery's making a good Czech lager. He wanted to tell the story of how they even learned to do that in, in a particular way. And it had to do with like a cultural exchange program through the embassies and like these people getting together and doing internships together. And like, you know, that's some like Marco Polo shit right there. <laughs> like That's really, that's really astounding to me. There was a phrase that I was listening to Brian Roth who interviewed Jeff Allworth on our podcast a few weeks back. And there was this beautiful description that Allworth gave to it, which is he was trying to compare his craft as a writer to the craft of beer making. And he used this word, um, craft, like the old Norse, I think, word for, for craft, which describes in a little bit more nuance, like what it means to like make something by hand or to have an intuitive sense of something. You've done it so much that you can do it without thinking. And he described his, his craft as a writer and as a curious researcher as like he can always kind of smell out when there's a person involved in something that is important to it existing at all that is like not a part of the script and not a part of the experience and not a part of the knowledge of how the thing operates and he described it as uh, finding the spider in the middle of the web mm -hmm. oh god I, like i had i like had to like stop the podcast right there i was like what the hell did you just say that's brilliant and because what I love about that is like a spider just senses vibrations and they sit at the synthesis point of something. Right. And like, ah, uh, it was just a 
fantastic metaphor. And to me, that's, that's what I see in the in that DeWolf article is like he wanted to find the spider in the middle of that web that he was experiencing on the outside. He's like, I'm getting check loggers in a place I shouldn't be getting check loggers. Why are they so good? And just the insatiable need to figure out why. And like you eventually find out like the one or two people that made that happen for some unique to them reason, some unique motivation that everybody benefits from in the long term. For the sake of beer as a global thought, so long as there is promoted cultural exchange, there's always going to be those opportunities for someone to pick something up somewhere else and then to bring it to the place where they're from. I mean, that's an origin story of so much of craft beer is, oh, I had this thing this one time somewhere and now I want to bring it because I can't find it here. And I think that's a narrative that happens like over and over. Oh, I mean, going back to what you were saying about how you and I experience the memory of a beer is in a place, in a context. Uh, when you can learn about it on the internet, like you have an amazing power in the immediacy of information. And we saw that transform craft beer. When, it, when craft beer became an online knowledge sharing kind of culture, everything could replicate super fast. Mm -hmm. uh, you could download a recipe, you could share notes, you could talk to each other in forums, you can make it happen, right? Faster than ever. Um, but without that in-person sort of craved like knowledge sharing that happens with that's intuitive and personal. Um, I think that's how you get things, you know, I think that's how you get brewed IPA. Um, I remember I went to, I wanted to taste the brewed IPA the way it was supposed to be because I'd had a few and just been like, I don't know if what I'm tasting is the thing it's supposed to be. So I went to Social Kitchen in San Francisco, flew out there for other reasons, but it made it a part of my trip. Went in there and tasted the thing. I was like, this tastes fundamentally different than all the brewed IPAs I've had. So this helps me understand why people out here are talking about brewed IPA. And it makes me wonder what the people back home are fucking talking about because they're not drinking what this is. It's an entirely different thing. And all they know is take an IPA and dry it out with an enzyme and you've got brewed IPA. And that was the internet version of the knowledge share. And anybody who'd worked at a larger production brewery or a corporate brewer like understood what an enzyme was. And so they were like, oh, I know how to do that. You know, didn't give it any more thought. Didn't build a recipe around what an enzyme would do necessarily. They just took a thing and and put it through a different process. And I was with another brewer uh, on that trip, and back or he wasn't a brewer; uh, he was a brand manager. But back home, his brewer was working on his version of a brewed IPA that he had downloaded from the internet, you know, basically. And he was like, "Fuck!" He's like, "I need to go home and tell him to get out here and taste this because he's not making the right thing." And he went home and told he told the guy, "He's like, you got to go. Here's a travel budget. Go taste these things. Talk to him about it. Figure out." what the difference is. And the guy was like, nah, 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 I got this. And that was during the time when it seemed like every sort of like largish regional brewer was trying their hand at one because contrary to the long, the long R&D cycles of hazy IPA and the difficulty getting them shelf stable, brewed IPA was something that you could figure out how to make in time for your fall seasonal shelf reset. And every large regional brewer, like an Omega gang, did that. Mm -hmm. And then they killed the style because none of them made the right fucking thing. And it was done in six months. You know, mm -hmm. a hazy IPA had so much more of a runway because it took so long for any of the larger brewers to figure out how to make it shelf stable enough to put it out and ruin it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and by then, there was enough of a culture built around it. It had already gone through a dozen R&D cycles at the small brewer level to get really, really fucking good and dialed in like a consumer base for it. That by the time Sam Adams makes the hazy IPA, nobody gives a shit mm -hmm. because it's never going to touch the thing that they love. And they already get at a dozen breweries in their town, you know, that they feel really connected to. So it couldn't it couldn't break it. A brute IPA, the cycle was so fast, it just fucking burned it out. Like it's like Mercury going to the sun, you know, it's just like, ah, oh, killed it. That could have been a beautiful category if those beers tasted like the social kitchen's beers. Kim, can't remember his last name now, Stoyvent or something like that. But um, the brewer that was there, he's got his own brewery now. So I don't want to give all the credit to social kitchen. I want to give it to Kim. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
could have been, we could have been, we could be living in a brute IPA world right now. If the internet didn't exist, if you had to go there to figure out what it tasted like, it would have been a different experience. And I think that that's part of the value that imported beer can have. It can give you a taste of somewhere else. Usually the wrong taste though, if you're trying to replicate it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's fair. I mean, imported beer historically has led to interesting interpretations of what a Hefeweizen can be. The double IPAs I've had, it works in reverse. The double IPAs, uh, the double IPAs I had from young brewers in Czech at a festival. I was like, wait, is this what you think an IPA tastes like? And yeah. there's like, well, they're like, well, the six month olds when we get, and I was like, oh shit. So that's interesting that it goes the other way too. Yeah, but right? There's a beauty in that to some degree, but it's never going to, you know, it's not helping the double IPA category. In check. <laughs> no, no. But if they're making great lockers, they don't need the double IPA category enough, necessarily. You do a number of different things. You're a fan of beer. You do design work. You do consulting. There's a lot of different things that you do. Is it hard to sort of square all these different things and to be objective in any of them? Fundamentally, don't believe in or care for objectivity as, a, as like a life philosophy. You only live once and you know nothing. <laughs> That's where I start from. <laughs> so just enjoy the ride to the mo- for the most part. But I, I would say it's impossible to be all those things in one moment. Um, it's too much mode switching. And so it becomes, uh, as my role in beer gets more diversified and, you know, in some cases gets more important, uh, because there's a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot more riding on certain things, you know, uh, as a consultant, there's a lot riding on those moments. It's important to approach those moments in the way that you want to, and to be mindful of that. So you don't show up like a consultant in a moment where you should just be having a really good time with some friends. Uh, and I think that's something that every sort of like, quote unquote expert about a category learns at some point if they also want to enjoy that category. Uh, you have to be able to kind of be within yourself in the way that you want to be in those moments to have them. Otherwise, you create a lot of dissociation. You'll create a lot of disappointment. Like you'll never be able to enjoy anything. Um, or in some cases, you'll enjoy it quite a bit and be very ineffective at your job. <laughs> so um, I don't know. Over the years, I've, I've struggled with some of those dissociating moments for sure. And I, you know, I, I struggle with the dissociation from what is seen as the the core of the culture. Sometimes, I, I, like for a while, it felt like I was very much, I very much was in the core of the culture and that core went in a direction I didn't like. And so I now feel like I'm on the outside of it in some ways. And so I kind of had to reconcile that dissociation often, like having a influential voice in a category that I don't necessarily believe I am any longer the core of. It's like a very weird place to be sometimes. So yeah, there's a lot of like reconciliation that happens that way. So I try my best to show up in those moments in the right mindset, understanding my role. But the hardest thing to figure out is what the other person's perception of me is sometimes. Um, Some people will always know me as a beer blogger. Some people will always know me as an innovation consultant. Uh, some people will always know me as a friend. Uh, other people will always, you know, will newly know me as like some guy on Twitter that like has a following that they never anticipated. And like, is that is that still my friend? Do I still relate to that person that way? Like, how do I talk to this person now? Um, I mean, just last week I had an interaction with somebody that I thought was on Twitter that I, was a dear friend of mine who I admire and and have had some sort of like ins and outs with over the years as like they they would work with me and then they would start their own thing and they would feel competitive towards me and like and I feel like I'm just the same guy standing in the same spot I always have been but I'm becoming increasingly aware that their perception of me changes over time and their relational sort of presence to me changes in ways that I'm not always conscious of or taking into account so it's not even just like do you can you enjoy the beer anymore it's like who are you working with that is your friend and who is also these other things or maybe something else now and they see you differently because of the role you play in the industry and 
you know, I think I think we are foolish sometimes in assuming that our friendships are friendships are friendships and not also integrated into advantages and disadvantages and competitiveness and cooperation. And we see that across, you know, we see that amongst brewers all the time as well. So that part is maybe where the complexity comes in for me is understanding relational kind of things, because you always just feel like you no matter what's going on. All right, you're always just you, mm-hmm. um, but you don't understand what constellation you're a part of in other people's minds. And that's really challenging. Can you give maybe an example or something in particular where this was highlighted? As somebody who works in media, I am often criticized for, for publishing an article that is maybe not so flattering sometimes. Even And then the next week, I'll invite that person or that brewery to an event and it'll be like, oh, we're so honored. Uh, and like within a week span, I will have both messages of just somebody being irate and angry about something we published um, and thinking that we're just like, we're some sort of corporate shill or we're like, you know, uh, we're dangerous journalists or something, you know, just like these like really high, like really a sort of like flamboyant language that we get around all journalism now, it seems like that's just the norm now is like, yeah. and then, yeah. And then the next week it's like, Hey, why don't you come pour your Cezanne at this fest? I think, you know, I think you guys would fit in right there because I largely ignore, <laughs> I try to ignore the other, the other stuff and they're like, Oh, thank you so much for thinking of us. We'd be honored to join you. And I'm just like, all right. So over time I've, I've tried to learn that like that person has a perception of me as being both evil and now manipulating on the other side. Cause they think I'm evil and still trying to be nice to them. And it's like, no, I was operating by the same set of values the entire time, but your perception of that moment being influenced by what you need and what, like what harms or helps you and is advantageous or disadvantageous to you or competitive or cooperative to you makes you see that as like somehow an erratic set of behaviors on my part. But both of those, both of those things that I did were motivated, motivated by the same values and personhood of who I am. Um, you just liked one and didn't like the other, you know, and it's hard for you to reconcile those two things. And now I have to reconcile your behavior on both sides of this. And so like, man, relational things in an industry like this is, uh, it can be really challenging sometimes. And it is complex when you are occupying a lot of different roles. Absolutely. And the more, uh, yeah. And I've learned that uh, I often need to really take a beat and ask myself, what is it, like, who does this person think they're talking to right now before I can even respond? Because if I respond to them in the way that feels true and right to me about who I am in that moment, that doesn't necessarily align with who they think I am or the narrative they have or what role they think I'm speaking in at that moment. It's very complex. Well, you can't ever fully put yourself into someone else's shoes, understand their experiences up to that point, and look it through their lens, whether you think they're seeing clearly or if they're looking through cataracts. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. And so uh, I, don't write those off, I don't write those interactions off as like, that person's crazy. I, 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 try to, I try to put them in a capsule for myself and say like, well, you're not going to figure it out now, but remember this one because <laughs> you might bump into an interaction like this again and it might help you. It might be another data point on what the fuck was happening there. Yeah. And you might never be able to resolve it, but you can learn over time like what the, you know, maybe there are categories that you can manage or maybe there are, you know, clusters of interactions you can have where it'd be like, okay, well, I've, you know, this, I've experienced this one a few times. Maybe there's something there worth trying to figure out and like worth trying to address differently next time. And like, you just focus on pattern making, man, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. I can tie it all together in some way. Cataloging humanity is something that you really like doing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That sounds reductive in some ways, but it's really, yeah, it's uh, just trying to, trying to live a life and figure out what the fuck is going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a hard ask. (laughs) Find a lot of ways to remember. That's for sure. Michael, thank you for having me in your studio. 
and thank you for coming on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure to have you. It was a joy, man. I haven't had a conversation like this in a long time. It's a pleasure.